0: Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Myanmar, Hungary, and a See in Hell that's celebrating the death of a fascist in history from Austria in the interwar period between World Wars I and II. Starting out in the United States, there is now an official criminal probe by the Department of Homeland Security into the deletion of the text messages. That were requested by the DHS, that's the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Justice from the Secret Service. Now, recall that the Secret Service last week said, whoops, you know, we deleted these messages after having been told not to delete them when it was clearly illegal to delete them. You know, these text messages that we were sending to each other uh, January 5th, January 6th, 2021, you know, during this coup that we were kind of a part of, um... Yeah, so they deleted the messages and uh, now there's a criminal probe regarding their deletion of these messages. This could result in criminal, like, federal prosecution of Secret Service people or of, like, the leaders of the Secret Service. Uh, They are no longer in charge of the investigation. You know, the Secret Service was going to try to do one of their own, you know, fake internal investigations into this, but they've been told that that's not enough. You know, there is now a federal criminal one. Uh, There are also ongoing requests for these text messages if they are possible to recover from the National Archive and from the January 6th committee. The January 6th committee is also trying to talk to people from the Secret Service regarding these text messages, uh, but they refuse to cooperate. They say that they don't want to talk to them and they don't want to appear in front of the committee, um, which let's be clear, that means that they were in on the coup and that they're trying to cover their butts and that they are failing to do so because now there's a criminal investigation by the United States government, which, you know, if there's any entity in the world that can recover a lost text message, uh, it might be the intelligence branch of the United States. Continuing on with news about January 6th, Steve Bannon has been tried and convicted of contempt of Congress. The conviction came down on Friday. It was a Real no brainer, like to the extent that Bannon's defense team didn't call any witnesses and didn't even really make any arguments. They claim that this is because their real defense, which is that Bannon was operating under the protections of executive privilege for refusing to talk to Congress about his involvement in the attempted coup and, you know, his involvement in Trump's uh, presidency you know, their, their claim is that they weren't allowed to make these defenses, which are their real defenses. And so like, that's why they didn't offer any arguments. Uh, there were only three hours of jury deliberation in this trial. So, you know, yeah, it was pretty obvious. This is the first time that somebody has been found in contempt of Congress since 1974, uh, which, you know, telling year, right? This is when a lot of the Watergate prosecutions were happening. Uh, So the last person to be held in contempt of Congress is actually somebody who's, you know, a pretty fair counterpart to somebody like Bannon. Uh, This is G. Gordon Liddy, who was found in contempt of Congress uh, because he was essentially the chief guy behind the actual criminal activity in the Watergate operation. You know, like he was the guy who got the people to go into the building and steal the documents. Right. He he was the one who did it. Bannon has been found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress, each of which potentially carries one year in prison and a $100,000 fine. Bannon and his lawyers have said that they are definitely going to appeal this, though, obviously, Uh, and we don't know what their sentencing will be until October. That's been the sentencing date set for Bannon's conviction. Continuing on, talking about January 6th, Donald Trump himself is now being investigated by the Department of Justice. Uh, this is a little complicated here because it, it's not like the Department of Justice has opened a formal criminal investigation yet. What's happening is that we know now that the Department of Justice is talking to people about specifically Trump's activity during and just before the coup. Specifically, they're talking to potential witnesses that they might want to call if they like were going to bring Donald Trump in front of some sort of judge to try to, you know, convict him of a crime of, you know, one of the many crimes that he committed ahead of this coup. Uh, Specifically, they're looking into Trump's attempts to get different slates of electors to show up. Uh, So if you remember this part of the plan, the plan was that uh, during the counting of the votes of the electoral college, electors from different states show up. And these are like actual human beings who show up and, you know, say their vote, say say the vote that their state is going to make. And Trump and several of his other co-conspirators were like, okay, well, why don't we just have like different people show up from those states and say that they are in fact the real electors? And, you know, we'll, we'll get around this this way. Uh, So that was their attempt to legitimize Trump's claim to continue to be the president. Moving on to a small tidbit, Myanmar, uh, a country also known as Burma in Southeast Asia, which saw its own extremely successful coup last year in February, uh, which returned military rule to that country after 30 years of democracy. Uh, Myanmar has executed four pro-democracy advocates. Uh, This is the first time that the country has held an execution of this type since the return of military government. So there hasn't really been one for the last 30 years. These were closed door trials at which these people were found guilty of, you know, sedition, essentially, and sentenced to death. Closed door trials, no attorneys. Myanmar does not care that these activities, like just straight up executing political dissidents without any due process whatsoever, are frowned upon by the international community because uh, they kind of know that they're going to get away with it. Moving on to other people who know that they're going to get away with what they're doing. We're talking about Viktor Orban. This week, Viktor Orban gave an address uh, to several like allies, basically. Uh, and he literally said uh, that countries which engage in racial population mixture, like as in countries that accept immigration, uh, are, quote, no longer nations. Uh, this is literally the prime minister of Hungary saying that when countries have racially mixed populations, they are no longer racially pure, and that they are therefore no longer nation states at all. Orban has a long history of opposing immigration, and not just like opposing immigration, like violently attempting to restrict immigration. And I don't mean violently as a sort of like florid adjective. I mean, he engages in state violence to prevent people from entering Hungary. Uh, Hungary is one of those countries that has talked about and has actually set up in some places fences, border fences, uh, with its adjacent countries and uses the police and the military to crack down on immigration, which it believes to be um, illegal or illicit. What's interesting about this speech from Orban is that like, A, everybody already knew that he thought this, but it's causing a major uproar, basically because he's sort of like saying the quiet part out loud, right? Uh, Except that, you know, it wasn't really quiet for him. He's been talking about this so far for a very long time. But he's been a little bit more explicit about it recently. You know, he's just like saying like that he thinks that Hungary should be a white nationalist country full of only white people. That's, That's what he seems to think. There's been some internal backlash within his coalition, specifically staffers that work for him are upset about this, you know, because he's saying the quiet pot out loud. U.S. conservatives, of course, fucking love this speech. Uh, They think that it is a good example of how a conservative should behave to protect the integrity of his country and his people. And the reason that I'm bringing this up now, because, you know, Orban gives speeches like this all the fucking time, but he is going to be coming to the United States next week. Uh, He's coming to the United States next week because he's going to be speaking at CPAC, which is the last thing that I want to talk about this episode. CPAC is the largest gathering of conservatives in the United States and even indeed the world. It's going to be held in Dallas next week over the course of the first weekend of August. There is going to be all sorts of people there headlining this conversation, uh, including Orbán. But of course, we also got Sean Hannity. We also have uh, Glenn Beck, which I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that the conservatives even still cared about that guy, but whatever. Uh, we got Lauren Bulbert. And of course, also headlining the event is Donald Trump. Now, tellingly, the headliners of CPAC at events like this, uh, are often the people that the conservative wings of the Republican party, which are incredibly just, sort of just completely 100% dominant at this point. These are the people that they think will be the rising stars in the party. These are the people that they expect to be leading the party or to be nominees for president. Uh, So like this is it's it's pretty clear here, right? They're going to nominate Trump. Trump is going to be the Republican nominee in 2024 if he runs. Unless, of course, he is, you know, ousted by a different politician. For example, Ron DeSantis, who, as far as I can tell, is not speaking at this CPAC, although he has spoken at previous ones, including the one that was in February of earlier this year. What we can expect at CPAC is a earnest rollout of conservative agenda items in the United States. They're going to be talking about what they consider to be their successes, uh, like for example, getting Roe v Wade overturned. They're going to be talking about things that they consider to be continuing ongoing fights. For example, their push to prevent queer and LGBTQ and trans representation acceptance or safety in the United States, you know, they're going to be railing about what they consider to be that the horror of talking about a person's pronouns when introducing themselves or yourself. Uh, they're going to be talking about their anti-immigrant policies, which is, you know, what Orban is going to be talking about. They're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. They're going to be talking about their anti-leftism. They're going to be trying to get everybody to consider anything other than their extremely conservative right-wing agenda to be the left. You know, Joe Biden will be being painted as a socialist at this meeting. CPAC is interestingly expanding in the last couple of years. You know, this year they actually held their first meeting in Israel. Uh, J.D. Vance spoke there uh, and so did Ben Shapiro. There has also been a CPAC in Hungary in Budapest so far. And, you know, this means that they're trying to cement an internationalist, right-wing, white nationalist, conservative, anti-queer coalition that opposes immigration, that opposes racial mixing, that opposes divorce, that opposes religious freedom. And the thing is that they're succeeding fantastically at this, that they are being extremely successful. And if the people who oppose the right-wing and the conservatives are to succeed, we need to be equally internationalist. We need to be equally cooperative. We need to be equally long thinking. You know, we need to be thinking in terms of decades. Finally, going to close out this episode as I do every week with See when Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I am bringing us to the interwar period in Austria. I'm talking about Engelbert Dolfus, uh, who was the chancellor of Austria between World Wars I and II, and is most famously and importantly known for being the key leader in Austrofascism. fascism Dolphus was born in what is now Northeastern Austria in 1892. Then, of course, this was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Dolphus was a peasant. Uh, his family was extremely poor. He did very well in school, however, and cooperations with local bishops allowed him to go to you know, continued education to go to high school. Uh, He considered being a priest, but eventually decided against it. He was technically too short to serve in World War I. Uh, Dolphus was under five feet tall, uh, but he did anyway by, like, finding a recruiter who would fudge the paperwork, right? He eventually rose the ranks and became a lieutenant in the Austro-Hungarian army. After the war, he left the military and ended up working in politics. Specifically, he worked as a leader, lobbyist type for a peasants' union, which is a specific type of like conservative, you know, socially conservative organization of peasants and agricultural workers. Um, But, you know, this is not like a peasants' union that, you know, if you're familiar with Latin American politics, these tend to be somewhat more leftist in uh, their engagement in politics and the economy. Peasants' unions in this context are often much more conservative. Later, he took this success as the leader of this peasants' union to be uh, appointed as the minister of agriculture in Austria in 1931. He quickly translated this success to be appointed as the chancellor of Austria uh, after only one year of service in government. Uh, He was the chancellor of Austria under the Christian Social Party, which was a central right party, uh, which was governing Austria at the time in a coalition with the Landbund, a right wing agrarian party, and the Heimatblock, uh, which was the political party of the right wing paramilitary organization known as the Heimwehr, uh, which is a like, fascist paramilitary organization operative in Austria between World War I and World War II. A parliamentary crisis after his ascension to the chancellorship led to him, uh, that is, Dolphus, seizing dictatorial powers and essentially creating a one party dictatorial state. In Austria. This form of governance has come to be known as Austrofascism, as in Austrian fascism. This is a specifically Catholic fascism, more akin to Franco's politics or Salazar in Portugal than it is to Nazism. Uh, it's a corporatist strain of fascism. So, you know, like the idea that different parts of society should organically, naturally represent themselves uh, as opposed to like, you know, some sort of more modern representative form of government. That's, that's, that's corporatism in a nutshell. Corporatism was eventually enshrined in the Austrian constitution when Dolphus successfully got a new constitution promulgated in Austria in 1934, which was modeled after the constitution of Portugal Uh, The Estado Novo Constitution, which is um, a corporatist one, a corporatist one-party state, fascist, Austria, was what Dolphus wanted and it's what he got. However, meanwhile, Austria was facing a massive amount of political turmoil in the early 1930s. It wasn't political turmoil that was primarily fueled by a fight between the left and the right, because unfortunately the left was extremely weak in Austria at the time. This was a fight between different factions of the right wing, specifically Austrofascists under Dolphus and his allies, and Nazis, as in like people who wanted Austria to be German, like they wanted Austria to become part of Germany. And this was ultimately Dolphus' downfall. He was assassinated by Nazi Austrians this week in history, the 25th of July, 1934, after an extremely short time in power. Mussolini, who is a key ally of Dolphus, was extremely pissed and prevented this, like this particular coup, this assassination attempt from resulting in the uh, annexation of Austria by Germany. Uh, Mussolini was especially pissed. Well, partly because Dolphus apparently was an actual friend, like an actual family friend of his. Their families spent time together. But he also needed Austria as a hedge against Hitler, um, because an increasingly powerful Germany would just dominate the continent. And that's not what Mussolini wanted, really, at this point in history. So because of Mussolini's prevention of this, in part, uh, this particular moment of political turmoil did not result... In Austria's annexation by Germany, that would have to wait four more years to the Anschluss, which is the name for this annexation in 1938. So, Engelbert Dolphus, we will see you in hell. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson. Thank you, Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro outro outro Graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you listen to this on. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 spelled out, all one word. And you can also get in touch with me at gmail at 15 fascism at gmail.com You can also reach me on Twitter at Hist of the Right. That's H-I-S-T- of the Right or Fashion15. And again, that's 15 spelled out all one word. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.